1: Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. Our Giro show is brought to you by our partner, LaCole, who produce performance cycling apparel and are the fastest growing cycling apparel manufacturer in the world. What better partner to have, the fastest growing cycling apparel manufacturer, when we're the fastest growing road cycling professional cycling podcast in the world? Natural Fit. You already know them because they supply the kit for Bahrain, McLaren the Pro Peloton. We've got interviews coming up on the rest days with those Bahrain riders. And if you want to check out any of the LeCol kit, you can find them at www.lecol.cc. Link is in the description of the YouTube video for this pod and in the pod show notes. They've got some pretty good bundle deals as well at the moment, get yourself some winter kit for all you guys, unfortunate enough to be in Europe and North America, and I'll be getting myself some summer kit uh, as I go into this 30-degree Queensland summer. In this podcast, we also have our recap of the Burbanchi Pale semi-classic that was on yesterday, a race that Benji and I really like. We're going to have timestamps in the show notes and in the YouTube video, but onto the Giro, stage six, Castrovillari to Matera, a hundred and eighty-eight kilometer long stage with starting with two uncategorized climbs that each would be cap two climbs in the Tour de France. Insane, I'd say there would be cap twos in the Tour de France. Eleven point six k is at five percent, then going into eight point five k is at five percent. No, the second one would be a hard cat three. Um, so yeah, we thought a breakaway might form there, then descent, valley, 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 valley. A um, couple of intermediate sprints, and then. I think with about, ooh, let's see if my maths is correct, maybe 30Ks to go. They start the category, category 3 climb, the Galleria Milota, 4.7Ks at 6.9%. Descent, then a rise into the finish, which isn't really categorised either. There's a main climb, 2.4Ks at 4.5% as they get into the Matera town, and then it flattened off a bit, and then a little bit of a, a rise into the finish. Uh, so an a regular gradient, a tricky one and our picks yesterday I think were, I don't know, Benji always um, reserves his judgement, thinks about it properly and then tweets it with his pizza notifications so make sure you follow Benji on Twitter to get his his pizza uh, ratings for the riders. I think I had Jagu, we were obviously talking about Sagan, Matthews, I think I liked Almeida too actually uh, as well, Uh, Ballerini, Swift. And Benji had three stars, three of stars for Damar as well for this stage. Um, so yeah, follow Benji. He uh, his picks are out of control at the moment. But yeah, Benji, what did you what did you think the finale was? Or what was the actual weather that came came through? There was some weather advice about a headwind on this stage, and maybe you explain why that would change who you think would win this stage, given that the, given that there was a strong headwind.
0: Well, firstly, I was expecting beforehand, before we heard the weather stuff, that you'd have a hard fight for the breakaway at the start because you've got those climbs, so on that, you'd expect multiple riders to try and launch away. After the climbing sections, there was indeed a headwind of, well, quite a lot. I don't know the exact number, but it was a lot, and it was very noticeable when you saw the motorbikes with their red flag, and it was just straight headwind, and the flag was like, standing up straight because the uh because of the wind. So yeah, there sure as hell was wind and it was very noticeable among the parkour. And because of that, I was already denying that a breakaway would win. Because usually when a breakaway is gone, they have to fight against the wind, blah blah blah, obviously. But in general, they have more of an advantage if you've got tailwind and you've got more of a chance of actually winning the stage. You I think the perfect example is the stage Thomas the hint won last year in the Tour de France. He had tailwind there, and because of that, the peloton just miscalculated a bit and was too late to actually go ahead and catch him. So, yeah, it certainly helps out with the peloton being able to catch the breakaway. If the breakaway is not that large, and that was also the case today. We had a four-man group get away. That was a small breakaway. I expected more. I expected more of a fight for it, but that was not the case. And we saw the likes of a Mattia Bais. He was in the breakaway already a few days before. And, well, he had a few members with him. It was Za from Bardiani, but also Marco Fraporti for Vini Zabu or Zabu Brado or whatever it's called right now, and James Whelan for Evadication first. Now, from that breakaway... I already knew this is not going to be a breakaway day. But the gap went up quite high. It went six to eight and a half minutes. And we saw in the peloton that there were a few teams that tried to control the race. But mainly the Koenig quick Quickstep at the start. To try and keep the gap, I guess, under eight minutes. Kind of failed. So under nine minutes, I guess. And they did that, first of all, for Almeida, I would say, to keep that Maglia Rosa. Although the people in the breakaway were on an hour or something in GC. But additionally, I think that they wanted to try and take the victory here with the likes of a Ballerini or even an Almeida if the climb was hard enough. And we also saw Bora have two riders at the front trying to pace quite a bit, but those guys came to the front a bit later on in this stage. Did you have to pick on the uh, weather forecast thingy for the final or did you mean the same thing that I meant?
1: Um, I think as well for the final with the weather, it's it makes it harder to have a really, really strong pace on the climb. Uh, that obviously this stage is going to be defined if we zoom forward to this uh, category three climb, the Gallery in Melotta. The breakaway had been, the gap had been brought back to them to about or ninety seconds or so. They started attacking each other by the time they got to that climb, um, and I think James Wheelan went clear to get the all the majority of the KOM points at the top of that climb. Um, and with only a gap of about 40 seconds at the front by the time he got to the top, to the peloton, and it just made it harder with teams here that probably don't have monster trains or anything to drive it hard on the climb and drop a lot of riders. So the question obviously was yesterday we were saying, will Sagan, will DeMar, will Gaviria, will Hodge, et cetera, survive this Category 3 climb, 5 k, 7%, and... A headwind makes it much more likely that they will survive because you got poor old Matteo Fabro or whoever pulling. But with a headwind, the benefit of a draft is amplified even on a climb. And, um, yeah, that's why we didn't really see many sprinters get dropped today except for I think Viviani got dropped. Again, he can't climb for shit right now. He's not looking good. <laughs> for Kofidis. Uh He got dropped on the climb early, and the pace wasn't even that high, honestly. like They weren't even strung out single file. They were spread out all across the road in the peloton. And I don't know when... Did Gavidia get dropped on the Category 3 climb, Benji? Or did he just sort of not get dropped, but was not able to contest the finale later?
0: I don't think he got dropped, but he did get in trouble for one second there at the side of the road when... Almeida was stopping to put his radio correctly or something, or there was something wrong with his radio because it seemed like they were stopping for that at the right front of the peloton together with Keise. They stabbed themselves at the side of the road, but one rider from UAE did not see that in time, and McNulty just rode right into Almeida, who fell onto the barrier. Now, it looked like Almeida didn't really have any consequences for that, but McNulty stopped, and Gavidia actually waited for him and fixed his bike of McNulty to let him go again. So it was a bit odd because it seemed like Gavidia had already decided that today was not going to be his day because, yeah, otherwise a sprinter probably would not stop for McNulty by the side of the road at that moment. By the way, regarding that incident, do you think there's anyone to blame? Is it the rider that stops in the position that Almeida did that's not 100% by the side of the road really, so could still be a dangerous place? Or is it the rider that just isn't looking forward enough to notice that someone's standing there and rides into it?
1: I'd probably put 65-35 blame on Almeida. I think he, he made a few, just a few things he did today in, in the pink jersey, which you you don't really notice when it's a GC contender in the jersey, like a veteran GC guy who knows what to do, like Nibali and Froome, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, he's, just sort of out of position more often, losing wheels um, and a little bit of a weird thing like that. But I guess also responsible, well, also McNulty should be responsible for <laughs> looking ahead of him and not crashing. But, yeah, maybe he could have picked a better spot to pull off Almeida um, and whether he needs to really pull over for to have the team radio. Is it that important? Yeah, it probably is pretty important, I guess, uh, and it wasn't. There wasn't any danger of him getting dropped. But onto the finale, and it was Bora Hansgrohe pacing in the valley before the final climb. They had, oh, by the way, we should say, sorry, Thomas Dehent sprinted, I think, Benji for a few of the KOM points that were left at the yeah, top of that final of the well. peloton. Also too. So they're clearly going for the uh, Maglia Azura, the KOM jersey, and I think de Hent, mm, we'll see how, we'll see. Um, but yeah, I reckon him and Pozzo are probably the favourites for that. And but yeah, Bora were pacing in the valley and on the descent, obviously because they had. Well, I say obviously because they had dropped Hodge and Viviani. But if I was them, I wouldn't have bothered. Honestly, maybe it was more important to just try and keep Sagan in position. But yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have cared if Viviani came back or uh, Hodge because. They're not going to contest this sort of finale, and if particularly if you're Sagan or Damar or UAE with Ulisi, etc., I wouldn't have been worried about them. Um, I'd be more worried about Ballerini on quickstep, honestly. And but anyway, Bora were pacing, and it got a, became a pretty fierce run into the line, actually. We saw a mix of the GC teams with. Tony Martin driving it for keeping Kreuzweich in good position, keeping him safe, um, which, yeah, they have to do. There was a really narrow right-hand corner, which pretty much made the rider single file. It was, like, quite sharp uh, in the last, I want to say, two-and-a-half Ks, and, yeah, important to have your rider in good position there because, I guess, they could lose time on GC in this sort of finish. It's not flat. What if the sprinter's teams and the sprinters, what if it's a little bit too hard for them? And then Jakob Fulsang, winner of a race like Liege, etc they can attack and maybe get, gain a bit of time on GC so that's why Yumbo pacing at the front Ini also pacing at the front with Ghana in the Malia Azura uh, looking pretty aesthetic I must say um, driving it with Swift on his wheel and then Jonathan Narváez third wheel and Benji, you had, I think, in your your pizza slice tweet, you had Swift, two pizza slices, advice one pizza slice. What sort of... Who did you think was going to be the preferred rider for Eos on this? Because I thought it was going to be Swift. I was kind of surprised by what happened.
0: Yeah, I thought it was going to be Swift as well, but we've seen that at 2 doing really great in these kind of finishes. I just didn't expect... A British team to choose an advisor over Swift for some reason. I felt like even just, I don't know if being British is probably not even an advantage at Ineos anymore, but in general I felt like Swift has more of an experience with this and therefore I had picked Swift being a two pizza slice guy compared to an a one pizza slice guy. But yeah, on paper I'd say that advisor did pretty great today and I'd be uh, pulling it forward for him once again the next time because It didn't happen today, but he's not that far off. He's uh, in the top 10 of today's stage. And if he's positioned better, and probably that's very important for this finish, considering the last kilometer, that that was crazy. But yeah, if he can get into a position where he's better settled, then I think he could get better results in the future as well.
1: I think Ineos made a little mistake, maybe not a mistake, but I think they missed an opportunity today to try something a little bit more aggressive, and it was through that right-hand corner that I mentioned. Ganna had strung it out, driving it into that corner, and then there was up a little rise. And three Ineos riders got a small gap, Notavise, Ganna, and Swift. And I think Ganna was pretty much done at that point because he, yeah, he pulled off and I think Swift looked around, saw he had a gap, and then kind of froze. And I feel like it would have been better for their chances if they'd sent Nadevise or Swift there. Probably Swift carrying the momentum he had in that up that uh, up the climb, and then see who would have chased. Probably wouldn't have worked. Um, but I think that would have, yeah, that would have been a better option. And they might have missed a little opportunity there to to be aggressive and see if something had happened because it did slow down it it slowed down in that last two and a half k's after gana pulled off because there's no really strong sprint trains here there's no fdj train up this hill for damar he's having to follow wheels himself gavidia is not there uae um a little bit strange from them today actually um didn't actually seem like they were working for Diego Ulissi, looked like they were working for Juan Sebastian Milano, who cleaned up a fair few sprints, I think, uh, at the start of this year at Tour Colombia, which he usually does. The Colombian usually lead out man, last man for Gavidia. Anyway, it was a bit of a mess, and it slowed down a lot. And Aura moved back up to the front with Peter again after Swift had been leading out for Nardweiss. Nardweiss then slotted in. Bora had, or oh, I think maybe Fabro, or uh, actually, no, it was maybe, yeah, Fabro and Bodnar, I think, or maybe Micra and Conrad. Probably Conrad, I'm not sure which. Um, I still don't know which of them, Conrad or Micra, is the GC guy there. But then Bora realized they were too much at the front. They slowed down a little bit and it was going into this last left-hand corner, and I can't really zoom in on the map in Matera, but pretty narrow, sharp left-hand corner, and, oh, sorry, before then, neebly had attacked. I should have gone back a step. Before it slowed down, Nibali attacked to that, this right-hand corner. Um, up this, so there's like a last steep pinch with oof, maybe 1,500 metres to go. There, anyway, there's a pinch neebly attacked because the pace was slow, and then... Yeah, Bora got kind of out of position. Sagan, who'd been like third wheel all day, got pushed back a little bit. Then Fulsang had his team with Astana. I think Fulsang was leading out or maybe trying to get a gap as well following the move of Nibali. Kroisweig had been up there like third wheel and then seemed like lost. He was like, I don't like it up here and then went away, <laughs> being at the pointy end of a finale. And then, yeah, through this last left-hand corner, Astana... Let out really hard on the right-hand side as they kicked out of it. It was pretty bunched up, and it was slow on the left-hand side. Arnaud Demar, I encourage you to go and look at the overhead shot of the last kilometre if it's available anywhere, just the overhead shot, and try and find the French national champ's jersey of Demar. He's so far back um, for the last kilometre, and then he just gets this magic run on the right-hand side up the Astana train, leading up for Fabio Fellini, who I think's won a couple of uh, Memorial Marco Pantani's, and yeah, Demar gets that run up the right hand side. Sagan so got absolutely swamped on the left hand side in that last corner. Um, Matthews was on his wheel, so I think Matthews suffered as a result of that too. And yeah, Demar then, as full saying, I think dropped off. Fabio Fellini, Fellini went on the right-hand side but then Demar kicked on the left, came out of the slipstream of the both of them and just got a, an incredible degree of separation uh, like a bullet and won the stage by about 10 lengths. I can't remember. There's no one else really in the shot uh, compared to how little he won the stage four by against Sagan. He, no one else was in the finishing frame here. Um, so really impressive from... Damar coming out of nowhere to get the W without really any lead-out from anybody. Pretty impressive from him getting his second World Tour win of the season, second Giro win. Matthews second, Fellini third, Molano for UAE, fourth, Cimelai fifth, Vendrame sixth, Mikel Honoré Benji getting another seventh, top ten here in this sort of finale, backing it up what we saw earlier in this Giro. Sagan eighth, very disappointing for him and Bora today. Battagin, 9th, the Italian for Bahrain, and Narvaez running at the top 10 for Ineos, and Ballerini 11th. Any surprises there, Benji, or have I missed any pivotal moments to that finale in my long explanation?
0: I don't think you've missed anything. The um, subject that I saw someone discuss already before is the fact that you've got GC guys that move up in the final kilometers of a sprint and kind of make it chaotic, but I feel like that's not really a point because you've got the likes of Anibali and Fulsang who see an opportunity here, mainly Fulsang for his team member, Feline, because he's the last man that's still there for Feline, so helps him out and moves up on the right and basically brings the march to the front that way. So really, really good move by Astana as well, because Feline in a top three in a sprint like this is a really good result. He has a good history as a rider, but recently has not been that amazing when it comes to results. So... It's great to see him up there once again. Like you said, Honore, he is... I said it before, a rider I didn't have a profile for, and it looks more and more that he's somewhat like Andrea Vendrame, who's just ahead of him. And I like that. I do think that Orone... Wow, Orone, that's a new name. Honore is not necessarily as sprinty as the others. He seems to be more a guy that needs a bit of a longer climb to punch on, but could be wrong on that one, so... Curious to see what he develops in. Ballerini, not a great position in the last kilometer and a half, and basically ending 11th. And I think the name that once again pops up here, I think it popped up before as well in one of the stages in stage four, the uh, one that DeMar won once again as well, was Fiorelli. I spoke about him and said that I wanted to know what he was going to do in the rest of this. And he's up there again at top 15. So. Not amazing, but he's showing himself and on a team like Bardiani. That could lead to, well, victories in some lower classics and potentially to a world tour contract in the future. So here's what he's going to give in the future, genuinely. Filippo Fiorelli.
1: Yeah, and I'm kind of surprised that they let, not let De win today, but that teams like UAE, etc. didn't Mm -hmm. pace the climb hard with uh, Lussi maybe for Milano. Because it's clear that on the actual climbs in this finale, in this last maybe two, three kilometres, that DeMar had lost a lot of wheels. He was coming from way behind in the last kilometre, making up positions. So, judging from that, it's clear to me that they rode this climb or this finale with very irregular tempo and hardish on the climbs, but then everyone started looking at each other and maybe Bora just didn't have that last man or two to keep the pace up for Sagan right into the finish and that cost, I think, the guys who might have been climbing better and I think the fact that Fulsang and Nibali were able to attack in the last little bit and the fact that Kreuzweich was third wheel really late suggests that, yeah, the climb was kind of hard but then no no one really reinforced that after it had finished and it allowed... Uh, the riders like maybe Molano and DeMar to actually be contesting this finale. But a nice win from Arno Demar He's had a fair few wins this season. I'm much more convincing than his win the other day um, when he just beat Sagan by a few millimetres. And I don't really remember him. Yeah, we, we picked him. I think I picked him in the preview show for a fair few wins. I, I doubt it was for this stage, actually. I think I'm, I'm, I probably, if I had to guess, pick Matthews for this stage. I would like to see Michael Matthews be a little bit more proactive in some of these finishes rather than always looking to, say, follow Peter Sagan's wheel. Now, I know sometimes it's very effective following Peter Sagan's wheel, but, yeah, I kind of wish, I feel like sometimes he's it means that he gets boxed in or he's having to react really late, and it would have been good to just see him just try and open it up um from like two hundred metres in this finale. And I'm not sure many other riders would have been able to follow him, but DeMar got such a sweet run on that Astana train on the right hand side that and he's got a better he's got a better sprint than Matthews. Um that he was pretty unbeatable in this in this finale. But yeah, on to stage seven tomorrow it, it begins in Matera to Brindisi. Matera, by the way, some sort of walled town on the edge of a cliff. That shit's crazy. It looks mad dangerous. I wouldn't live there. Um, <laughs> One earthquake there and it's like, gone. But it's been there for like a thousand years, so maybe they know what they're doing. Um, it goes from two, from coast to coast, it seems, unless that's the lake that I'm seeing. Uh, it's a 145K stage flat. It's going to be a bunch sprint tomorrow. There's two intermediate sprints at 66Ks and 92Ks. I think we saw today that Sagan... Sprinting um, for the intermediate sprint points is already a thing. He's going against Damar for those. So the battle for the points jersey is already heating up. I better check actually. Sorry, we better, I, I might for uh, completeness just check the. Yeah, Arno Damar, I think, just took the points jersey off Sagan Benji from this stage win. So yeah, big disappointment for Sagan. Obviously, losing that because he came eighth, he didn't really get any points. If he come second or something, he would have yeah been more, wouldn't be so far behind. But anyway, back to stage seven tomorrow. Got those intermediate sprints. We'll be seeing them battle, I think, again to to clean those up those points, and then a pretty much flat run into the finisher. But in DC, apparently there might be a little bit of wind, but we'll see tomorrow how when everyone wakes up how strong it actually is and what direction it's coming from. My favourite for tomorrow, Fernando Gavidia. I'm picking Gavidia. He's had a rough couple of rough starts the Giro, I think, uh, particularly the stage, the first stage that Damar won. And yeah, I'm picking Gavidia to to take out the win tomorrow because I don't actually think DeMar is that quick on the flat, given that he had a full lead out. He had Quagliari do a magic lead out for him on that stage four, and he only beats Segan by. Oh an inch if that in a sprint where went really early and looked like he had the same sort of acceleration as Damar. So I think Gavidia is a better pure flat sprinter than than Damar. I'm not sure how technical the finish is tomorrow, but yeah. That that's my pick. Who you like,
0: Benji? I think I'm gonna go for I would put them both the same, but I'm also going for Gavidia. I'm gonna follow you on that one because it is the first opportunity that gavira can actually properly strike here and if he leaves these stages behind and not get any results on these stages it's not going to happen this joe so he has to make it happen on this one so i feel like he's going to do it and there's plenty of stages afterwards where the mark can come into play more now about those intermediate sprint points like you were talking about with sigan and demar i generally think that demar is a really good competitor for Chiclamino and can definitely get that and I think you you called that as your Chiclamino pick if I recall correctly and I think you're n- not going to be actually wrong on that because well it kind of depends because Sagan's intermediate sprint today was pretty bad as well since well Bodnar took a point away from him since Bodnar didn't break when Demar passed him and he actually ended up being uh, ahead of Sagan at that sprint so yeah, I feel like your pick of Demar Chicolamino might be looking brighter and brighter. And if Demar keeps this up, he can win like, yeah, three to four, five stages. If he keeps this up, let's aim for three fast and then see what the uh, next days hold. But yeah, the next week has a bit more hilly parkour than actual mountains. I think there's only Roccarazzo on stage nine that can be considered a mountain stage. Stage 12 with plenty of hills or climbs it's in between but i think we're kind of looking at week three and the gc favorites as well for the major differences so yeah it's a bit of a um a grand tour split in three parts a part where we started off with a bit of a combination of flat hill and mountain stages in week one week two being less of the mountain stages and week three just being plain mountain stages so i'm very much looking forward to uh the coming days and also on tomorrow because yeah gaviria is going to win for us with the three pizza slices
1: okay three pizza slices for gaviria i mean i'd probably put Damara with three as well but i have to pick one uh gaviria i did have Damara for my uh Chichelina pick because um i had him winning like four stages i think in my in my preview as well as <laughs> a lot of those rolling those rolling hilly stages um, I thought he'd be actually okay based on what he showed at Wallony. Um I actually didn't think he'd win today. I thought there would have been more trouble on that Category 3 climb, but the way the wind was blowing meant that it was harder to drop the pure sprinters. Uh, but that was our Giro Stage 6 wrap-up, just a quick one. The Giro so far has been so good. Uh, every stage has been worth watching. Hopefully tomorrow there's a little bit of wind as well. Shout-out to our Giro show partner, Lookhole for supporting us with our Giro coverage, making it possible for us to do it. It's 3 a.m. right now where I am, so if you appreciate the pod, make sure to drop a review or a rating on the Apple uh, podcast player or whatever it's called. But on to De Prabanchi Pale, or also known as in Spanish slash Italian slash Lantern Rouge language, La Freche Rabanchone. 197 kilometres stage from Leuven to Overijse. Sorry, say it, Benji. Overijse. 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 Yeah, I had a bang on, um, and it's just a, a really nice semi-classic. I really, I love this race. I really, really like it. I've done videos on many previous editions. It's uh, it's called a semi-classic. It's a one-pro race, but I, really, there's a lot of there's some World Tour races where the field ain't as strong as what you saw today. At, oh, yesterday, Purabanshi um, Pale. And it's got cobble climbs, mainly many repetitions of the Holsteider, I think that's how you say it, the uh, Schmiesberg, the Krabo um the Herdstraat, that's a short one, and the Chevay, uh which is 900 meters at 5.1%. They do that many, many times. And yeah, it's a really nice race, and it had a really strong field yesterday. It had previous winners lining up, 2019's winner, Matthew van der Poel, you might have heard of him, Tim Wellens, 2018's winner, Cole twenty 2017's winner, I think Vakodj as well. He was on Arkea Samzic, Samzic. No, Samzic, Alpes and Phoenix, the other pro-conti team that punches above its weight, um, on Matthew Vanderpol's team. He won in 2016. And Sagan won in 2013, actually, I've done a video on that race. If you want to check out what it's kind of, how the race is normally ridden. We had Kwiatkowski there as well, fully freed, um, and Sergio are now as well. So pretty nice start list, if I may say so, um, particularly with the world champ, Philippe, with, yeah, trying to make amends, I guess, for yesterday. When, not yesterday, on uh, liege Baston liege where probably not his favourite day ever. Um, yeah, what do, do you think is a good... We're not going to do a line-by-line recap of the race. It's been 24 hours since it finished, but I think where's a good moment to start, Benji, when the race is really kicking off? Maybe when Philippe attacked with, like, 60 to go, kind of signal something was going to happen. And um, yeah, like where was Van der Poel when, when that happened?
0: I feel like every single time that Philippe makes an attack, you saw that Van der Poel was not in a position that is close enough to make a direct response. And every time there was a bit of a gap between Philippe and the group behind that Van der Poel had to cross. And it really got on my nerves a bit because it is something we notice a lot with Van der Poel in the races that he's ridden so far this year, that he last year was like miles in front of the rest so he didn't have the issues of positioning and so forth because he just rode away and rode to the finish line or in the end he was with two people left and out sprinted them but i've got the feeling that positioning has been a real weakness this year for him and that is both in the sprints and also in the group itself because when they go up come to an interesting section where attacks can follow he's like Six wheels back or five wheels back, while we visibly see that Alaphilippe is in second position, ready to attack. So you'd expect a Vanderpool to figure that out and have the insight to figure out that Alaphilippe is going to try something and get closer to his wheel, so that he doesn't have to close that gap every time. It loses him energy, and yeah, it's something that we see throughout this whole race. Every single time that an attack is placed to Vanderpool, he seems to have to close an extra gap because his initial positioning was. Just not great.
1: Yeah, I think it was the Hurststrat that Alaphilippe, Alaphilippe, by the way, he was hiding nothing. He, he, he was signalling that he was going to attack every time. He was coming up to like second wheel, first wheel, just about at the base of all these cobble climbs and then was lighting it up. And yeah, every time, like Kwiatkowski, who, Kwiatkowski is not as good as Matthew Van der Poel. Like what's wise, talent, physiology, everything in a race, not as good, sorry. In the, in this parkour, by the way, obviously, Kwiatkowski's got other strengths. But on this parkour, Matthew van der Poel is is way stronger than Kwiatkowski, But Kwiatkowski's just he's one of the savviest riders you'll see. Um, if you even if you look at Imola, I think he kind of he faked out Wat van Aert to start sprinting early. Um, it didn't work out for him, but still, he he kind of faked him out with a like a. Um, a twitch that made Wabanaka go early. But, yeah, he's always cognizant of where Alaphilippe is, and it's just sometimes his legs can't do the talking when Alaphilippe and Van der Poel are going up these climbs. But, yeah, Van der Poel always made it hard for himself having to close down. Uh, First, that was a move, by the way, set up, I think, by Luke Rowe with Kwiatkowski and Alaphilippe, and Van der Poel, who was deep in the peloton, was like, holy fuck, (laughs) I have to close this. Um, They're two of the race favourites for this. But then Alaphilippe attacked. I think that it all came back together again. Um, and but then a large group formed, again initiated by uh, Philippe. I think ooh, maybe it was like 20Ks to go or more, a bit more than that, sorry. Um, like ooh, 35, 40Ks to go. Alaphilippe attacked once again. Van der Poel was close with him. And Kwiatkowski missed that move. And it was a group of Alaphilippe, Cosnefrois, our boyfajoual Mondial, Mathieu Vanderpol, Poel, Colbrelli, and Omar Frey. He bridged across with Colbrelli and Cosnefroy to Alaphilippe and Vanderpol who'd gone clear with like 33Ks to go. I, I can't remember whether it was Alaphilippe or Vanderpol who initiated it. I think it was kind of a situation of Alaphilippe attacking with Stieber and then Van Der Poel following. And then you, if you were, before we criticize, I guess, with hindsight, if you were Van Der Poel and you're with Philippe and Peter Sagan, 2013 Peter Sagan's not here, Vakhodge isn't here from like 2015 form, and you're with Philippe in a break, one-on-one with him, would you work with him? Would you do a lot of the work or would you, just back your sprint and chill and just mark his moves and just would not let him go up the road. And also, if you were Philippe with the strongest complete team here, with Stieber and three Stevenens, would you work with Matthew van der Poel in a
0: break? Firstly, if I am van der Poel in this situation, I would be working not full force or anything. Obviously, keep your sprint left, but you know that you're the best in the group, so... You want to go to the group with this to to the finish with this group, since you know you can beat them in the sprint on paper. And if you're in Alaphilippe's position, you'd expect that you can't do that. Even though he doesn't have a terrible sprint, but in general, on paper, Van der Poel has a better history of sprinting compared to Alaphilippe. So, if you're Alaphilippe, I would be thinking I've got a strong team behind, so maybe I can try and tactically use that. But on the other end, we've seen already that. With every move, the other riders from the Koenig were moving back in that second group and did not necessarily look overly strong either. So it kind of depends. I don't think Philippe was really in a luxury position that his team could have helped him tactically from that point onwards. So I think he played with the cards he was dealt and maybe he could have, well, not worked as much and said that, well, behind I've got a team that is strong enough to... Well, still be off service, so I'm not working that much right now, but uh, I don't know. I, f- I feel like considering what Ala Philippe has done so far in his history in some of the sprints he's won, I would definitely attempt it with this group and I'd be working as well, even though I think you, you've got a different opinion on that.
1: Oh, I think one-on-one with ala Philippe I wouldn't be working that hard if I was Vanderpol but when it's a group of six or seven where you're only having to, and everyone else is working then yeah obviously working is fine for Vanderpol um, if I was ala Philippe I don't know it depends what Matthew Vanderpol is doing if he if you're one-on-one with him 30k from the finish and he's driving it and letting you sit on his wheel, 80% of the time, then that's a great scenario. If he's requiring you to do 50% of the work and tiring yourself out, and you've got Stibar and Davinenz looking solid behind you, I think you should be sitting on a little bit more. But I think that actually was happening. I don't think either of them were going full because they got caught um, by that Colbrelli and I think it was the Frail group and then Luke Rowe, having had Kwiatkowski miss that initial move, Luke Rowe just smashed himself. They went onto the base of another one of the climbs and Kwiatkowski just sprinted across like a seven-second gap. So it, this was an incredible move from Ineos and Kwiatkowski. He knew that with Alaphilippe and Colbrelli and Van de Poel off the road that, well, you're not going to have Alpes and Phoenix or Quick-step pacing, in fact, quick-step were like messing up the chase really well back in that peloton. Kwiatkowski was running out of teammates and, yeah, he was able to get across. So then we had with 14 k to go, seven that group of seven, Kwiatkowski, Covey for UAE, young Italian, I think, Colabrelli, Cosnifra, Davinens, and Matthew van der Poel. And then Alaphilippe attacked once again on one of the climbs. He brought with him van der Poel. and, as Benji said before, Van der Poel wasn't on Alaphilippe's wheel initially. He had to skip across a few wheels and, yeah, he he just wasn't, like, marking Alaphilippe a lot, whereas Kwiatkowski was marking Alaphilippe but just couldn't follow him. And then Cosnefoix joined (laughs) Mathieu Van der Poel and Alaphilippe. And I know Cosnefoix kind of became a bit of a meme during the Tour de France, but I remember saying, I think in Tour de L'Anne when he won that stage, I was like, watch out for this guy. Um... Or maybe it was a different French race that he won a uh, stage. But, yeah, he is properly talented, Cosnifrois. He did really well in in Flesh, I think, or Liège. I can't remember which one. And then up there with the big boys, the biggest of big boys today in the final, final of the uh, Berbanchi Pale. And looking good, like not looking out of place either, working hard with them. And, yeah, maybe he could have sat on a little bit more if I was him, I would have been inclined to, but he kind of did in the last three Ks anyway. And they had Klobley and Covey and Kwiatkowski chasing, but yeah, they weren't they weren't bringing this back. I think it was they got caught eventually. Those guys by a second group coming out of the peloton, which had, which had Buggy, Ivan Asander, Dylan Turns. That was within now uh, six Ks to go. Um, they had like a twenty second gap. Van de Paul, Kozner, and uh, Alvar Philippe. And then, yeah, Kozlov kind of shut it down with about three k's to go, I think. And by the way, Vanderpol had been pulling so hard this whole time. And if I was Vanderpol, I don't think I would have worked as hard. And I'm not saying that just because 2020 hindsight, because of what's going to happen or when we let you know the result. But I'll probably explain it better in the in the finish. But yeah, just remember that now he was working very hard in this group particularly in the last 3Ks. I think Van der Poel's a guy who can recover really easily, like quickly if he has a short break. But he was worked. So if he worked up to 3Ks, they had a pretty big gap, to be honest, like 15, 17 seconds, and they still have like a cobble climb in the last K or, a yeah, a hard climb in the last K. So I don't think it's cobbled. So, yeah, I feel like he didn't need to put the foot on the gas that much. 700 meters to go, gap 10 seconds. Then they got this climb. Van der was leading it out from the base, but not going full. I think he was just checking the gap to the peloton constantly. Cosnifar then attacked. It's a left-hand corner, and there's like 175 to go as they come out of that left-hand corner. Cosnifar attacked with like 300, 350 to go. Uh, obviously a mistake, but anyway, I've got to love the man. He Van der Poel immediately got onto his wheel, getting a nice draft, going to that corner, Alaphilippe on Van der Poel's wheel, Cosnifra then kind of dies after they come out of that corner. Van der Poel then sitting on his wheel on the right hand barrier. He's sitting on Cosnifra's wheel. They're both flush with it. Van der Poel's got his wheel kind of overlap, not overlapping at all with Cosnifra. He's actually like fading him a little bit. He's got like a half a foot gap off him. There's no space to the right of Cosnifra to go up the right hand side. 150 to go, 125 to go. <laughs> and then Ala Philippe. Moves up to the left-hand side of Vanderpol doesn't start his sprint full, and like I'm probably very critical of Alaphilippe, but his sprint today, apart from right at the end, his sprint was such high IQ. The way he came up next to Vanderpol, boxed him in perfectly, and didn't really start sprinting max until 75, 80 to go because he knew he could keep Vanderpol in that pocket where he put himself. He also sprinted flush with Cosner, making sure there was no way Van der Poel could come round him or keep a gap between the two of them. And then, yeah, he opened it up. Van der Poel had to really, like, almost stop pedaling for half a second. He had to then switch off, move, wait for Alaphilippe's wheel to fully clear him. And then switch off to the left-hand side and he only really was able to start sprinting with like 55, 70 metres to go. And that was way too late. Alaphilippe posted up again too early and even with Van der Poel being coming really late, he came quickly. But, yeah, it was still like a photo finish by half a wheel, a third of a wheel because of Alaphilippe celebrating too early. There's actually something wrong with Alaphilippe in the head. <laughs> by the way, I'm just going to say it. I like, I don't know how you can disagree. Like, that is just lunacy what he's doing because you know the photographers are still going to get you a shot with your hands in the air if you celebrate after the line. So you don't need to celebrate before. But anyway, yeah, he he sprinted, got the W, high IQ every every part of that sprint until he posted up. And Van der Poel made a big mistake. But yeah, why why is it, what are the mistakes of Van der Poel in that finale, Benji, and why? Like, you're on the ground in Belgium and Netherlands. Has he been, did he get a lot of criticism
0: yesterday and last night? Yeah, I think he did. And everybody knew that he didn't do that well. But he's also the person that every time he makes a mistake, the first interview after the race, he acknowledges and knows what he did wrong and basically says, I'm not going to sleep well tonight because. I know what I did wrong and I should have won here. So it's like he knows what he should have done directly after the race, but during the race, maybe not quick enough to process that a certain move in the sprint could have led to a different situation where he wins. Because I feel like the moment that he looked back with about 150 meters to go, 175 meters to go, they just went past 200 meter board. And he looked back to see what Ala Philippe was doing because Ala Philippe was not next to him yet. And the fact that he looked back was for me the issue because you had 180 meters to go or something. You're of Vanderpool and you've sprinted for longer than 200 meters in the past with no issue. So I think he made the issue by looking back and not directly launching at that very moment because if he launched at that moment, He would not have had Alaphilippe next to him. He would have been able to pass Cosnefoix, and it would have been up to Alaphilippe to try and come out of his wheel. But Alaphilippe would have an advantage of being in the wheel in the draft of Van Der Poel then, but it's a risk you have to take because you're Van Der Poel. And yeah, I I definitely want to say that he kind of bottled it because he had that. Like, a three-man group, his positioning... Obviously, through the skilled craft of Alaphilippe Strick in the last 150 meters, riding next to him, like you say, next to Cosnefoil, obviously that had influence, but he also brought himself in that position. And apparently in the interview afterwards, he was hoping that the gap would open up on the right of Cosnefoil, which I would not expect because Cosnefoil launched his sprint, so he can't technically even go to the left without deviating his line. So, yeah, on paper is just a bit of a a tactical mistake for sure that led to his loss today. And it's again a bit of a positioning issue as well for me and maybe a decision-making issue in the last two kilometers because we've said it in the Bing Bang Tour that he was trying to lead out Merlier a lot but made some weird decisions when it comes to cornering and maybe some decisions that would get him in a better position but not Merlier and eventually end up even dropping Merlier more places if he failed to succeed in while cutting a corner or something, past someone. Now, it is a clear thing, a clear issue, a clear weakness of Vanderpool that that is the case. That does not make him a bad rider, obviously. He just has to live with the fact that last year, he was miles above everybody and did not need tactical insight to win race. He could just storm away and, and win the sprint like that. But... I've got the feeling that this year he's not at that one ten percent that he needs to to succeed in that, and because of that, he's unable to make well race victories happen as much because he needs more technical insight for it. And I think that's where his weakness lies at the moment. I don't say this as a full negative criticism party at Vanderpool's place. No, I believe that he's going to be great in the classics upcoming. I hope that he sees the issues that are currently lying in his court and that he tries to find a way of dealing with them in a positive way and finds a way to maybe in the groups itself when riders that are important for the race are looking like they will attack that he's moving up a bit because yeah, that was a a clear issue in the race itself as well with Alaphilippe's attack that he just was not in a good position. You spoke about Cosnefa. I feel like Cosnefa needs to... uh, needs to have a bit more trust in his sprint as well because his sprint was not terrible at all and he's got a bit of an explosiveness we saw that in Quebec last year and he's won quite a few punchy sprints as well in Limousin so far last year all the French races took plenty of victories but I saw it mainly in Quebec I think or Montreal one of the two where with about three kilometers away, I think it was Montreal you've got téléphérique or something I think that's the name of the climb a small hill in the middle of the city. And at that moment, he went for a very explosive attack that gave him like 9 to 10 seconds on the group behind, but he got caught because Matches was about to sprint for the victory there. But in general, I do have a feeling that he needs to have more trust in that explosivity and maybe try and put himself in a better position to try and out-sprint ala Alaphilippe. Because I think if Cosne falls in the wheel of Philippe. He might genuinely have a chance in a 1v1 if he tries, because now he tries too early. And because of that, yeah, I feel I feel he can do more if he has more trust and is in a better position. And today he chose to go first in that last corner, tried to surprise everyone. It didn't work out. And because of that, he was kind of lost already before the sprint started, because he was basically leading out Vanderpool and Ala and at that moment, in my eyes.
1: Yeah, Cosner from played it perfectly for Matthew Vanderpol. He gave him a little he gave him a lead out and relieved him from having to fully lead it out on the front. And I feel like Vanderpol correct me if I'm wrong, write down in the comments if you see something I don't. Someone can someone articulate what his strategy for these races is? What is it apart from mash pedals hard as possible? Like I mean, he's not at a different level to Alaphilippe on these cobble climbs. Alaphilippe was going toe-to-toe with him, sometimes even gapping him off the wheel, and then he was catching back up because they weren't very long. And, yeah, I feel like he didn't trust his sprint today, but he also wasn't trying to get clear on the climbs of Alaphilippe or trying to drop Alaphilippe. He obviously then in the sprint was too focused on Alaphilippe when Obviously, I think if he if he just comes out of that corner, comes to the left off Cosner wheel and opens it up there and starts sprinting, I think he wins comfortably. Uh, that was only with like 150, 175 to go. So he obviously was either worried too worried about our leap or felt like he didn't have good legs. But even if he didn't want to start sprinting that early, just tactically... He has to move up to the left hand side of Kosnifua and start shading him to the left. The same way you saw Pogacar, she and Roglic all like fanned out to the left hand side behind Alaphilippe and Liege Baston Liege finale. They went right directly in a line. I mean that was also a function of Alaphilippe moving to the right, but you generally he. he he didn't overlap his wheel to the left-hand side of Koznerfwa, which is a big mistake because it allowed Philippe to legally and smartly come up flush with Koznerfwa. And whereas Van a big dude, he compared to these other two riders, he should have yeah used his momentum to move up to the left-hand side of Koznerfwa, and then he can still look at Philippe. And then the minute Alaphilippe kicks, and he kicks, then at least if he's got a straight line ahead of him, he's still winning that race. Um, he, he didn't either of those two things: open up early or sprint, um, yeah, or ensure that he had clear air in front of him, which he could have done just by rolling through and, and shading Coulson to the left a little bit. And yeah, I worry for him in the in the classics. Uh, they got a really strong team ups in Phoenix, but I feel like it's either maybe a DS thing as well. Maybe the DS isn't telling him, "Hey, you can launch it from." Right out, right out of that corner is where it's fine for you to to launch it. So maybe it's that. Um, but yeah, I've, I've I've said it many times already that I think he his legs being otherworldly sometimes cover up. Especially last year, they covered up maybe some tactical or strategic um, errors, and the level is very high this year with. Well Van we're gonna see at the Cobble Classics and Ala Philippe as a puncher in these races like Rubanche Pale that you, you can't no one's good enough to make really bad mistakes and win races uh consistently. So yeah. Congrats to Ala Philippe getting the getting that win in the World Champs jersey. Very impressive win from him at the Ribanship Pale, and Alaphilippe deserved to win. He was the most aggressive rider, especially like from yeah. From a long time in this race, attacking really early, he was the strongest rider in my view, particularly on the climbs, and he deserved to win. And he was tactically really smart in the in the sprints. So just yeah, really impressive from Alaphilippe. Clearly the best puncher in the world, and um, yeah, getting that win in the world champs jersey after the disappointment at Liège Baston Liège. Kind of happy for him. And now to the women's race at the Brabantse Pale which started, actually had uh, door-to-door coverage, live coverage, I believe. And once again, we had a start list that was minus, um, well, some of the big favourites that we normally see, which was Anna van der Breggen and uh mik van Vleuten. And although anna van Vleuten has never won this race, um, maybe it's never been like, her in the schedule. I'm not sure how her recovery is going, but for the women's race, it was 121.9 k's. Same, pretty, pretty much same parkour. Finishing in over over Asia, um, lots of cobble climbs. Mariana Voss was here. Chloe Hosking, Marta Bastianelli, Luc- Lucinda Brand, Corinne Rivera, Eugenia Bujak, who's actually looked pretty good this year, and Lauren Stevens, the American. The you know Voss has won this race before in. 2016, and sort of want to. Where I started watching was when Lauren Stevens, the American I just mentioned, who's a pretty good time trialist, um, she was up the road. She arrived for Team Tibco um, Svb, and she she was up the road clear, and it was a very similar situation to Liege Baston Liege. Actually, you had a pretty large group behind, and you had. Lippert in there, Sunweb were the strongest team. They were well-represented with corin Rivera, Lippert, um, and a few other riders. Who else was there for Sunweb? Pfeiffer, um, uh, Georgie and Florici Mackay. Sorry, Florici Mackay was who I was trying to mention. She's a strong rider in these sort of races, Dutch rider. And Mitch and Scott having whole leadership for Grace Brown once again. They've got no Van Vleuten, no Amanda Spratt. I'm not actually sure how Amanda Spratt would have gone in such a race like this. And Grace Brown being their sole leader, you've got um, Voss kind of looking human this year as well. She doesn't look as strong, um, and CCC aren't really that strong to bring back bring back moves for her that easily. Trek Segafredo did they didn't bring back bring uh, Elisa Longo Borghini, so just remember that. So a lot, a lot of the big names weren't here, like Longo Borghini, Ludwig, Van Vleuten, Van Breggen, and Nui Doma. I presume they're all having a rest. And so it wasn't as strong a field. And no Lizzie Dignan either. That being said, just like in Liege, Bastion Liege, Grace Brown, seeing that group go nowhere, despite it having like four Sunweb riders in it, attacked out of that group, closing down I think a 20 to 25 second gap to Lauren Stevens, who was up the road. And they got onto, I think it was the Hurdstrat climb, and Stevens went over to the right-hand side as Brown was uh, bridging over to her. And I think this was with a fair few kilometres to go. By the way, this was like with maybe twenty kilometres to go or more. And this is like, this is like well over twenty-four hours ago. By the way, so I'm doing this all off the top of my head from memory. But what I do remember is they got onto that couple climb. Stevens goes to the right-hand side, trying to get on the gutter. Where it's smoother and you can probably go a little bit quicker, but it is narrow, and you've got to be careful where the the, the curb comes up to the right-hand side. Well, you can clip that with your uh, your pedal if you're pedaling on that. So it's kind of sketch. Brown just monsters it up the middle, monsters it up the middle of this climb, right on the cobbles, in the saddle. And Stevens was like half falling over, like trying not to crash. I'm not even sure she knew Brown was there at the time. And that meant that Stevens had no chance of getting onto her wheel. Brown went straight past her and opened up a monster, a big gap. And it was clear like there was no way she was getting brought back. Um, The group behind was relying on Sunweb too much. And, yeah, Brown was looking just as strong as she did at Liège when she attacked out of the Vos group that was struggling to close down. Lizzie Dagnan up the road and Brown made a a race of that race, which looked over. She brought that gap down to like nine seconds. One of the favourites now for women's Paris-Roubaix and uh, Tour of Flanders.
0: The one race that was also meant to happen this year, Paris-Roubaix, is looking like it might actually be looking like a cancellation. The whole Paris-Roubaix, men's and women's, which... Yeah, the French COVID situation is getting worse and worse, like all over Europe, and I think we're going to see more than one race be cancelled in the next couple of weeks. We already had Amstel Gold Race, so yeah, the Paris-Roubaix one is looking really bad at the moment, and I'm afraid that that's going to be a no-go, and if Paris-Roubaix is going to get cancelled and it rains that day, I'm going to cry all day, I'm not going to lie, but yeah, it would have been a great opportunity for the first time for the uh, women cyclists as well to have that Paris-Roubaix, but... It looks like it. It look. It looks more and more like it's gonna be for next year, which is a bit unfortunate.
1: That's some bullshit. I mean, it is what it is, but uh, that's <laughs> just really that. That sucks. Um, uh, I don't know why you hit me with that with the reality, Benji? You know, I don't like the news. You know, I just I got tin I got aluminium foil around on my windows in my house. Uh, no radio, no TV. All I got is a subscription to cycling live streams anyway brown eventually yeah got a gap of like 50 seconds to a minute it was two sunweb riders who kind of attacking each other to be honest they attacked out of the main chase group liana lippert and florty Mackay. they were working with each other for a fair bit but they weren't they were not bringing back this gap to brown brown even looked even compared to the two of them who were working really well like who were working together she was still opening the gap up a little bit, and they were at least holding it stable. And, yeah, there was no chance of her coming back. Eventually, Lippert dropped Mackay on one of the climbs, and they were kind of attacking each other a little bit. Maybe they didn't know the gap to, to Brown. But Brown won the race by 47 seconds. Second was Liana Lippert, the German, Forty, yeah, 47 back. Mackay, 51 back on Brown. And then another gap to that chase group, the reduced bunch sprint, won by of Capeki, the Belgian for Lota Sadal. Fifth was Emilia Farlin. Write her name down in your little black books, Emilia Farlin. If Women's Paris-Roubaix goes ahead, that's my dark horse. I think she can get on the podium of Women's Paris-Roubaix. Um, she's a good time trialist. She's won... Yeah, she comes second on GC A Ladies Tour of Norway. She came fourth in World Champs Road Race in, in twenty eighteen behind oh yeah, that was that was like a six minute behind Van der Bregen fourth, but still she's got a pretty good sprint. She got a time trial on her, which is important at Pariru Bay, Ganchalara, Well wow, fun art. Um so yeah, just just write that down. But yeah, she, she came fifth. Rasa Leilovita, she's actually had a pretty good season, actually. She came sixth. Maria Julia Confalonieri for Seretchit WNT Pro Cycling, seventh. Katia Ragusa, eighth. Mavi Garcia, who's kind of quietened down a little bit since her Strade antics, when she came second to AVV there, ninth. And Lawrence Stevens, tenth. So, yeah, it's not, it it didn't miss a lot of the big favorites. The women's banshee pale, but good to see Grace Brown getting that win. Probably the biggest win of her career, to be honest. Although maybe a second in Liège, I mean, it's been a good week or so for her uh, in the Ardennes, and she's got she's a good time trialist. So I also think she's one of the favourites now for paris Bay. Uh, obviously, if Chloe Dygert had a World Tour license, wasn't a team with a World Tour license, and wasn't injured. She'd probably be the favorite for Perru Bay, but she isn't racing it for both of those reasons uh, but we'll get to the Paris- we'll do a proper preview for Peru Bay when it happens um if it happens, trying to stay positive here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll do a proper preview for that um but yeah, that was the Brabantic Pale, a bit of a late we uh, we just uh we couldn't watch all the races yesterday it was too much um. But thanks for listening, as always. Make sure you give us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. We've got a jam-packed weekend coming up with Ken Vabel. Thanks for the call, as always, for partnering with us for the Giro Series, and we'll see you tomorrow. Ciao.